What if we could live substantially longer and healthier lives? Recent advancements show that it may be within our grasp. My guest today is on the leading edge of the longevity movement, and he's going to explain the primary biological causes of aging. He'll also reveal science-backed ways we can help turn back the clock by improving cellular function, reducing inflammation, and more. Get ready to learn actionable steps to extend your health span and lifespan. Welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm the founder of The Silver Edge, and our mission is to help you build and maintain a lean, healthy body that you love for the rest of your life, so that you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a great show for you today. Chris Mirable is here, and he's going to give us some practical advice on how to extend our health span as well as our lifespan. If you are the least bit interested in the science of longevity and how you can apply these concepts to your own life, stick around. You're not going to want to miss a minute of this episode. My guest today is Chris Mirable. Chris is a biohacker who's aging in reverse. Through simple tweaks to his lifestyle tuned for longevity, he has scientifically measured results showing that he's aging 31% slower than normal. After surviving a brain tumor at 16 that left him bedridden and aware of his own mortality, Chris founded the public benefit corporation Novos, the first consumer biotech company simultaneously targeting the biological causes of aging to promote healthy lifespan extension. With a scientific and medical advisory board of top researchers from Harvard, MIT, and more, Novos has raised over $3 million in funding. Chris also runs SlowMyAge.com, where he shares his quantified health routines, and he's been featured in media outlets such as the New York Post, Daily Mail, lots of podcasts, and more. His story proves that you can hack aging without spending a fortune. I started our interview today by asking Chris to explain how he became so fascinated with biohacking. I initially got into health and fitness when I was 12 years old. Gym class, we had to do pull-ups. I couldn't do that many, and so I became a little competitive and decided I wanted to exercise every day and get better the next time around. And so it, it was that much more of a surprise to me, despite how much I was exercising and watching what I was eating as, as a kid. That when I was 16 years old, I was on a school trip in New York City at the Federal Reserve Bank, a, a little you know geeky adventure learning about finance and, and the monetary system, when I suddenly started feeling dizzy and nauseous. And next thing I knew, I woke up on the floor with blood all over my shirt. It turned out I had had a seizure and severed my tongue. And they brought me to the emergency room. They gave me a CAT scan once my parents arrived because I was a minor. And then they told us together in the, in the ER that it was caused by, as they put it, a large mass on my left temporal lobe, which is just above the left ear. Uh, and they said, we believe it's a brain tumor, which it turned out to be the case. It was a brain tumor. It was larger than a golf ball. Uh, it was pushing up against the temporal lobe and the hippocampus and that was cause for an emergency surgery. And so 
I got radiation treatment and eventually had the, the tumor removed. And fortunately, I'm, I'm here to tell the story. So obviously, other than missing half of my brain, as I j- joke about, I don't literally have half of my brain missing. I, uh, I, I, I'm able to tell the story because uh, it was a success, but it was, it was a journey for me. It was a transformative one. It, it completely changed my perspective on life and what I wanted to derive from it, as well as death and mortality and how fragile life is. I started asking myself questions and contemplating things that most people don't actually ask themselves until they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s. In fact, my mother, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer while I was starting my company, Novos, in the longevity space. And unfortunately, I lost her to it and I dedicated the company to her. But the questions that she was facing and the thoughts she was facing where I read to her poems and journal entries from when I was 16, and she was so touched by them because they were the same thoughts that she was having at that moment in her life. So I, I look at it ultimately as a gift because it gave me a different perspective on life, a peek into what my future could look like if I didn't take care of myself properly. And essentially, I resolved to never be in the same position again, laying on a hospital bed, not knowing whether I would wake up again the next day and to do everything I could to make sure that I'm not only healthy for today, but that I'm looking out for decades in the future, that the decisions I make today are good for longevity. They're not simply good for a short-term goal of maybe weight loss or muscle building or focusing better on my work or libido or whatever these short-term goals might be, that they also have to be conducive to a long, healthy life. Okay, that's quite a dramatic story there, obviously. So at a very young age, you had this literally life-changing event, this the scary health event, and it really shook you up. And like you said, it, it you were starting to have, you were starting to question mortality at a very young age, uh, rightfully so, right? With that, with that scary medical history there. Now, I'm curious what you do today when, when you meet somebody, say, at a party and they say, well, Chris, what do you do? What, I, what do you tell them? What is it that you do? What do I do to improve my longevity? So there's no, no, no. Multiple... I'm just I've, no, oh. no. I've, I've, we're going to get to that. Believe me. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kind of curious if if you and I just met at a party and I said, well, hey, Chris, nice to meet you. What do you do? How do you answer that question? How do you explain what you do? Not so much for longevity, but what you do as for a, a living. Right, right. I know you have sure. the business, but yeah, how do you describe yourself? Yeah, well, so I would say that. I I founded Novos, which is the first consumer longevity biotech company. So we're taking biotech innovations. So the latest science, we're doing studies of our own and we're working with top scientists around the world to be able to deliver to you, the end user, the latest in longevity science, whether that be formulations or free advice and guidance uh, to, to really make a difference, to really make an impact on your health span and your lifespan. And the way that I've, I've set up the company has been as a public benefit corporation. I do it specifically to be able to go beyond just profit and to be able to do things that are good for the public at large. And there are three legs to the company. The first leg is formulations. So we create these best in class, first of their kind, for, kind formulations to address the biological causes of aging, which we can talk about later if you'd like. Uh, patent pending, we work with scientists at Harvard and MIT on our advisory board to create these. The second is biological testing. So there's actually ways to measure your biological age and your rate of aging. 
And some people might be intimidated or scared by that. But what I, I, I want to emphasize is that these are are modifiable. You can slow down your rate of aging. You can slow down or reduce your biological age. It's not hardwired like our genetics are. Genetics only account for about 10% of the aging process. 90% of it or more is lifestyle and environment. And then the third arm to the or leg to the business is information and tools. So we have more than 150 scientifically referenced articles written predominantly by PhDs and MDs, completely free on our blog at novoslabs.com. We have tools, for example, something called FaceAge, where you can take a selfie. And with AI, we can tell you how young you look and then skin health markers and then give you guidance for how to improve those scores. We have a questionnaire at the top right corner of the website, if you click on quiz, where you can answer a series of questions and in less than 10 minutes, we give you a very personalized set of recommendations for you and your longevity, how to slow down the aging process based on science. So all of that is completely free as as our commitment as a public benefit corporation. All right. Fantastic. I absolutely love that. And that's what I kind of wanted to pull out. Your expertise then is in longevity. And before we dive in, because I, I want to pick up apart a bunch of that, but why do you think we as a society are getting sicker instead of healthier, given all the all the resources, all the knowledge, all the technology that we have and the advances that we're making in medical science and even in biohacking and the money that we pour into this. And I think I've read that for the first time in a long time, the, our, our, we're going to talk about health span and lifespan, but our lifespan is actually shrinking and not growing. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so that's a great point. So yes, for the first time in, in history, at least in, in recent history, has the lifespan in the United States shortened. Other countries is still getting longer, but in the United States has shortened. But also, I think perhaps as important as that is actually this idea of the lifespan health span gap. So what that what that means is that our lifespan, let's just say we've gotten it up to 76 years old or so now, um, the health span is the period in which you live without a chronic disease of aging. And so that has actually fallen short. So it hasn't moved in lockstep with longevity. So in other words, people are sicker for longer before they pass away. So longevity, our definition of it at Novos and, and many others in the industry, is not simply about extending maximal lifespan. There are some hardcore scientists that look at it as extending maximal species lifespan. For us, it's about extending both lifespan and health span, but lifespan as a consequence of improving health span. So health span, first and foremost, go as long as possible without getting ill and sick. And then by extension, you end up living a longer life. So to your question of why is this happening? I think there's a number of forces conspiring against us, so to speak. So one is just the environment in which we live and and the desire for companies to create hyper palatable foods that are stripped of nutrients and calorically dense. So if you look at what nature has created, nature has created typically foods that are not calorically dense, but are very high in nutrients. So they're nutritionally dense. And so if you have vegetables and fruit, if you, if you have Organ meat, for example, something that like maybe some people, members of your audience have, have eaten or their parents have, but in my generation, practically no one but me is eating, right? But these are the healthiest foods, at least from, from animals, right? Just really dense in nutrition, like liver, for example. So 
when you compare that to what most people are now purchasing, they're purchasing foods that are very high in sugars, in fats, with salt and sweet flavor characteristics that make them hyper palatable. So something that you become almost addicted to, you're getting practically no micronutrients from, so you're running deficiencies in a whole bunch of different micronutrients that are required, and you're getting excesses of what we don't need excesses of. That's calories, right? Fats and, uh, and, and, and carbs and sugars, and oftentimes neglecting the protein intake as well. And so sarcopenia is something that sets in, in typically in 60s and 70s, and it accelerates. That's the, the loss of muscle mass as we get older and people die from falling, for example. The, these are all things conspiring against us. On top of that, I think the medical establishment, as much as I love the medical establishment for what it did for me, it kept me alive after a brain tumor. It's very good with acute care for something once it has already gone wrong, for a specific condition, right? But in terms of preventative medicine, it doesn't, it doesn't really exist in, in the current medical establishment. Most MD programs don't teach about nutrition uh, at all. And some of them do only a few hours and compared to pharmacology, which is you know, dozens and dozens of hours, there's no comparison, right? And when you look at the curriculums of, of medical s- schools, it's roughly speaking, 50% is based on studies funded by the pharmaceutical industry. How much of that is really looking at like prevention of avoiding disease? So you you have these health authorities being medical doctors, not really knowing how to advise us on avoiding the diseases that they are treating. And the medical establishment as a whole, the industry and the pharmaceutical industry being in the business of sick care, they are financially motivated for us to be sick and for them to care for it rather than unfortunately the reverse, which is prevention of that disease so that they don't have to, we don't have to go as far as that. And that's where something like preventative medicine comes in. And then more specifically longevity, I think goes above and beyond typical preventative medicine because it's really thinking of the causes of aging. What looking at aging as, this is a controversial topic, but looking at aging as a disease in and of itself, that is the number one common denominator across the most common diseases, chronic illnesses from cancer to heart disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, sarcopenia, the list goes on. And and finding ways to address these hallmarks of aging, these mechanisms are causing causes of aging on a microscopic level to slow them down and actually slow down the aging process so that we can, as, as we like to say at Novos, so that you can be younger for longer. Younger for longer. I absolutely love that. That echoes a lot of what we talk about on this show every single week. I love the fact that you're talking about that you started the kind of that conversation with the difference between lifespan and health span. And while when we increase our health span, not only are we increasing our quality of life, our world gets gets smaller as we get sicker and frailer. It gets larger as we stay healthy and vibrant and competent. And I I I have heard somebody else refer to you you had mentioned, hey, it's not just that we want to live longer, we want to live healthy longer. We want we don't want to be in a disease state for longer and longer and longer. I've heard that referred to as the compression of morbidity, right? If I can live a healthy, vital life right up until say I'm 90 and then drop dead, right? I mean, eight we're not going to nobody's going to out trick 
aging. I mean, we all have the same biological inevitable end. It's just how do we want those last chapters to be written? And to your point, I think I heard you say in there somewhere, hey, we, we do have this genetic component and that that is a smaller, a much smaller, like a 10% piece versus what is in our control, this 90% of lifestyle stuff that we want to talk about. Now, you'd also talked a little bit about some of these biological causes of aging, and I want to have some fun and geek out on that. But before we get there, sure. as I was preparing for this this episode, doing a little bit of research, I saw, I think it was probably a blog article or something, that you talk about low-tech versus high-tech approaches to longevity. I think it might be fun just to use that to kind of set the foundation for what we're getting ready to talk about. Do you want, you want to spend a minute and tell us what's the difference between low-tech and high-tech approaches to longevity? Sure. So, well, so... Low tech, I, I consider to be basically everything that's available to us right now. That that would be diet, improving sleep, even some you know technology when it comes to apps or wearables and stuff like that. Which some might consider that to be high tech, but um, relatively speaking, it's actually still pretty low tech. High tech, we're talking about really it, the future of aging, right? So these are interventions. This is technology that's being developed in, in biotech labs that is 10, 20, sometimes 40 or 50 years away from actually hitting the market. A lot of this is, is extreme and it, it may very well scare some, some of your audience away. Just the, the thought of it, things like DNA modification, right? So specific genes that might be altered that can lead to longer lifespans, like a gene called FOXO. Foxo is a gene that is associated with super centenarians, people living 110 to 120 years old, being able to give people a greater expression of the Foxo gene. Like that's something that people are working on in, in laboratories. So the high tech are things that are, are not yet available to the general public. You know, people who are really into technology tends to be like the more scientific minded audience members. They tend to be, just really like to, you know, imagine what the future might be like for that. But for the most part, what we need to concern ourselves with now is the low tech side of things, lifestyle changes, supplementation, diet, so on and so forth that can actually have a measurable impact on the rate at which we're aging. And if, if I can add just one more thing to that, sure. because in my experience, there are a lot of skeptics out there who question whether it's even possible to slow down aging in the first place. And they, they claim that it's purely genetics or, or, you know, a divine force that's determining how fast or slow they're going to age. And I, and I want to challenge that. And I, I could do so from a couple of different perspectives. So one is that studies have found, in fact, there's one in particular in the journal genetics that looks at the inheritability of of lifespan. And it found that more than 90% of aging is based on lifestyle and environments and less than 10% from genetics. What, what does that exactly mean? It means that if, if you have say two twins, right? And one lives until they're, they're 60 and the other one lives until they're 70. It's not actually the genetics that is leading to 10 year longer lifespan. It's actually the lifestyle decisions that have, have led to that. And we can actually see this in, in our everyday life. All of us know that 60 year old who looks like they're 70 or 75 years old. And then we know that 60 year old who looks like they're maybe 45 or 50 full of energy, full of life, even their face looks younger, they have less wrinkles, they have this, this exuberance to them. That is a 
physical manifestation, if you will. That is that is a visual uh, way for us to see people who are aging faster or slower. And we've been able to detect what factors to a large degree, what factors are able to accelerate. For example, smoking cigarettes has been shown to accelerate the aging process and what can decelerate it, different lifestyle practices. Where genetics becomes more significant for the skeptics, I'll I'll give them this, is for the very, very long-lived people. So if you're living beyond 100 or 110 years, then it might be more than 10% genetics, but it's still not going to be a majority. Lifestyle still has a big impact on that. And you might point to a family member or friend who lived until 90 and smoked cigarettes and ate an unhealthy diet. But my question to you is, well, imagine how much longer they would be living if they actually did live a healthy lifestyle. They wouldn't live to 90. They'd probably live beyond 100. Yeah. So I just want to set that 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 foundation as we talk about these hallmarks of aging so that people understand that they really do have the power to slow down the rate at which they're aging, which then has implications on morbidity for these chronic illnesses and ultimately mortality. Okay, and I think it's safe to say that everybody listening wants to slow down aging, right? I, I think we all can agree that we have that right. in common. And let's let's kind of transition here. I want to talk about, you've got these 12 primary biological causes of aging. Let's geek out on each one of these a little bit. If you don't mind, define what what it is we're talking about, why it causes aging. And then maybe we had talked about this difference between the the low tech and high tech. Let's stay low tech since that's what's available to our listeners today, right? That's what you, me, everybody listening can do today. And I'm going to start with the first one, mitochondrial dysfunction. What the heck is that? And how does it affect longevity? And what lifestyle changes can we make to put that in our favor? Sure. So, Before I I answer that question, it's important to note that all of these hallmarks are a complex web in which they interact with each other. That's fair. So when one goes wrong, another one is likely to then start to go wrong. It's like a car. If the tire is blown and you keep driving on it, you're more likely to have damage to the rim and the axle and the engine and so on, right? So keeping that in mind, the mitochondrial dysfunction. So the mitochondria are, as people like to say, the power plants of our cells. This is how we actually generate energy to be able to think, for our hearts to beat, for me to be able to move my mouth and my muscles and, and for us to function essentially, right? So it's the energy center for our cells to perform their functions. And they are what's actually taking the carbohydrates and the fats and certain amino acids within proteins and converting those into the energy in the form of what's called ATP. And that's the energy currency of our cells. So as we age, we have fewer mitochondria and those that we do have are less functional. They're not as efficient producing this this power, so to speak. One great way to improve mitochondria is through exercise, right? So exercise stresses our cells and it, it it requires additional energy. And so our body comes back through a process called hormesis. Hormesis is when you stress your body and then your body says, I need to come back stronger next time. So as it repairs itself, it actually stru- uh, strengthens itself, so to speak, on a cellular level and on a macro level in the case of muscles. And it, it is going to rebuild itself to now be able to produce more energy. So 
So, so exercise is a great way. For each of these hallmarks, I can also mention a few supplements, sure. ingredients. So malate, glycine, alpha-ketoglutarate, fisetin, terostilbene. These are all natural ingredients. They all also happen to be in Novo's core, our foundational formula. But like I said, we, we purposely created our formula to address the 12 hallmarks of aging. We're the only company in the world to do so. So it would make sense that each one of these hallmarks, we did choose ingredients specifically to address them. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I did want to pull apart some of these some of these supplements specifically just because you had just you had mentioned three or four there very quickly. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say most people listening have not heard <laughs> sure. have not, not heard of that. You know, it's not ashwagandha, it's not creatine, it's not one of these more basic kind yeah. of things. So feel free to as you're as you're describing these ingredients, maybe why they why they work for this. But I love that your very first one when we talk about my, mitochondrial dysfunction and how we want to increase the that mitochondrial density and because it's going to produce this ATP that's going to power our entire bodies. And first thing out of your mouth is exercise. We talk about that all the time. So folks, that's that's our first prescription is, is some movement there. I love the idea of hormesis or this adaptation because very often we think, I think most people think, well, when I lift some weights, I'm actually doing a little bit of damage to my muscles and then they're repairing. And while that's true, you're, you're there's some truth to that, right? There's some damage and repair. That's not what we want. We don't want to damage and repair. We want to damage, repair, and adapt. We want this hormesis. We want to grow. So absolutely, absolutely love that. All right. So keeping in mind your disclaimer that all of these are going to be intricately intertwined, let's talk a little bit about cellular senescence. That's gotten, that's been out there in the, in the biohacking community here for a while. What is that and how can we combat it? Sure. So senescent cells are, are oftentimes compared to zombies, right? So these are cells that are, are no longer healthy cells. They've stopped dividing. And there's a number of reasons why they may have stopped dividing. For example, sometimes it's because the cell was cancerous and the body arrests that cell and prevents it from spreading. Other times it's, 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 it's from scarring, right? So you cut your, your leg and that scar tissue, there are some senescent cells that form there for part of the scarring process. But these senescent cells exist within our bodies. Um, it's part of the reason why our, our face, facial skin wrinkles, right? It's because there's an accumulation of these senescent cells. And part of the reason why they are compared to zombies is because they, they secrete a inflammatory molecule called a SASP, a secretory-associated uh, uh, senescent phenotype. It's a big term for, for something simple. It's basically just this inflammatory molecule that can then impact nearby cells and then cause them to turn senescent. So it's something that, as you can imagine, as you age, it actually turns exponential. So you have very few when you're young. And as you're hitting your 50s and 60s and 70s, that goes up exponentially. So these cells are not only causing dysfunction, like for example, not letting tissue be as flexible as it otherwise would be, and hence wrinkles, they're also causing additional damage. So we wanna do what we can to, um, to prevent that SASP from being secreted and or destroying these senescent cells. Now we don't wanna go crazy with destroying the senescent cells because there are studies in mice that has, have found that if you kill all of the senescent cells, it can actually have a negative impact. Some senescent cells seem to have a benefit. So our perspective as a company, at least at this point in time, which, you know, you know, first 
uh, we, we want to make sure that we're not causing any additional damage. We take a position of what's what's called senostatic effects. So this is preventing senescent cells from spreading. This is kind of quieting them down rather than trying to destroy all of the senescent cells. And so there's one ingredient in particular within Novos Core that has a, a favorable effect on that called fisetin. We, we did a study at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom where a professor analyzed the effects of our formula and compared it to the gold standard prescription longevity drug known as rapamycin. This is the drug that has the greatest effect on lifespans in all animals studied, but it's a prescription drug and it has side effects and it's usually used for organ transplants. With that said, our effect on senescent cells was comparable to that of the rapamycin. So that was something really exciting for us to see when we were researching that we had such a, a significant effect on these senescent cells. Okay, thanks for sharing that. I had heard that senescent cells are these kind of zombie cells. Maybe other people have heard that and that we want to get rid of them. I had not heard that before that we want that there there is some function there's obviously a function or they wouldn't be there but that there is a balance like most things we want to optimize we don't want to eliminate but we want to optimize the the our senescent cells i suppose so it seems to me it's it was basically there is a there's not really a lifestyle thing there other than practicing all of the healthy lifestyles we're going to talk about eat real food exercise manage your stress sleep things things like that is there a specific prescription lifestyle thing that you would suggest for senescence or really is the more the or more into supplementation there to impact that? yeah i i would so so first of all the the dr judith campisi is a, a researcher if you're curious to learn more about her work related to you know some potential functions that senescent cells can can provide overall you know it's it's agreed that you want to reduce senescent cells the senescent cell burden on the body but there are certain conditions in which they might actually be prov providing a function to the body. In terms of, of other lifestyle interventions, uh, I, I would say exercise again comes to mind for it. I, I don't know of any specific, you know, foods, for example, that, that would have uh, a favorable effect right. on senescent cells, but exercise potentially could. I'm going out on the limb here. I don't have any specific research to support this, but but then again, I haven't looked for it. I wouldn't be surprised if I mentioned earlier, like senescent cells being associated with your skin, that things like topical Retin-A, tretinoin cream, may potentially be able to have a favorable effect on senescent cells or reducing the likelihood of senescent cells. Overall, it's, it's rejuvenating the skin and having quicker skin turnover rates. And there may very well be something to that, but that's something that, that I would just earmark as something to look into as opposed to saying that it definitively does. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Now you've mentioned, you've mentioned exercise twice. I just want to pull that apart just a little bit because exercise could be a, a lot of things, right? If I walk, sure. that's exercising and probably everybody should do that. But we have the cardio, we have the strength training. Is there one specific modality specifically for those of us in fifties, sixties, maybe seventies, where maybe there's some of that sarcopenia, that lifestyle caused sarcopenia, is there one type of exercise modality that would be more effective than others when we're talking about reversing aging? I wouldn't say that there's one. I would actually say that there's two, right? So we okay. want to balance strength training with cardiovascular health, right? So cardiovascular is great for the heart, for the circulatory system, and, and great for the brain as well. And then 
weightlifting and strength training also good for those as well, though maybe not to the same degree, but then also very important for uh, for muscle and uh, to prevent sarcopenia and, and so on. I'd say that for, for people who are, are getting older, first and foremost is strengthening those legs. You don't want to slip going up or down stairs. You don't want to trip easily. You want to have some coordination and, and a, a, a you know, stable, solid foundation. Because if, if you don't hit your head and pass away from, from the head trauma, what oftentimes happens is you might break a bone, you know, injure a limb, and next thing you know, you're in a wheelchair. And it's actually that process that leads to further sarcopenia such that when you get out of the, the wheelchair, now you have such little muscle mass, you're a different person, you're not as physically active, and then everything like accelerates in a negative direction downhill. So you want to have the, the strong foundation in the legs. So if you're going to weightlift and you're only going to emphasize one area of the body, I'd say legs first and foremost. Now, full body conditioning is important, but if you're going to choose, choose just one, I would emphasize that. And then cardiovascular, at the least where you get like Pareto's principle of, you know, the 80-20 rule where you put in 20% of the effort, but you get 80% of the benefits. Roughly speaking, maybe you're putting in 20 or 25% of the effort, but you're getting 60, 70% of the benefits is about 25 minutes per day of a brisk walking or something that gets your heart rate into like the somewhere in zone two cardio. And you can look up online what zone two will be based on your age. There are simple formulas to approximate it, but um, that might be like a brisk walk for you or a light jog, depending on your fitness condition. But it's basically like the fastest you can go while still maintaining a conversation Doing that for about 25 minutes per day is fantastic. And that will go a very long way for, for lifespan and health span without going crazy with, with, you know, intense workouts like, like some of us like to do. Right, right. No, I absolutely love that. We talk a lot about that on those subjects on this show. So I think maybe our longevity prescription, then if I'm hearing you right, maybe we do three weightlifting sessions, full body preferably, but let's absolutely make sure we have that solid core and lower body foundation. And then 25 minutes of that, that zone two, that's, that's that an activity where you can carry on a conversation and not be talking like this. Cause then we're moving right. into the next zone. Not that there's anything wrong with those more intense zones, but as a starting place for longevity, absolutely love it. All right. Chris, uh, we'll be here all day if I keep derailing you every time you, I ask you for one of these. We've, we've got a few more of these things to get through. All right. So number three on these primary causes of aging is loss of proteostasis. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. All right. What the heck is that and how do we combat it? So so you, you hear it in the word proteostasis, so proteo, proteins. Um and, and stasis. So, you know, the ability to, to maintain the proteins within our bodies. If you look at a cellular level, uh, there are proteins are messenger molecules, right? So our bodies produce these proteins to then be able to send signals, which is something we're going to talk about probably in the next hallmark of aging, but they send signals to one another to basically have them perform different functions based on what our physiological needs are at any given moment. And as we age, some of these proteins start to accumulate inside of the cells and outside of the cells, like at the walls of the cells. And as a result, it interferes with the proper functioning of these cells. They can't, 
they can't really perform their job, so to speak. It, an analogy would be like having garbage. The garbage men don't come to pick up your trash. And so it, is, it starts to accumulate first outside of your home and in the driveway and on your front lawn. Next thing you know, you can't actually access your door easily at least. And then you get inside and now the trash is accumulating inside as well. So now your home is no longer as functional as it would otherwise be. So we need to be able to recycle and remove these proteins easily. And having a loss of proteostasis is essentially the loss of the ability to to do that. Okay. And what's what can I do then from a lifestyle or a low-tech sort of biohacking approach here to increase my longevity or really to help recycle, remove these proteins around my, around my cells. Yeah. So, so there are specific ingredients, specific supplements, like for example, glycine. Glycine is an amino acid that's found in collagen protein, for example. Uh, glucosamine, your audience may be familiar with for its uh, effects on, on joint health, but it also has a number of other benefits on, on our overall health, including heart health. Uh, fisetin, I mentioned earlier for the senolytic properties, but it's, it's, it's found in strawberries. It's a natural molecule, but it, it's also been found to be able to help with proteostasis. And then believe it or not, lithium. Lithium is an ingredient that people either associate with exploding batteries right. or with uh, psychiatric uh, conditions yeah. like bipolar disorder. But that's at macro doses. That's at high prescription doses. What I'm talking about is microdose. Microdose is equivalent to what we've evolved with. If you imagine natural foods and fish like salmon, uh, uh, drinking from, from well water like we evolved with, the rocks, they leach lithium into the food and the water supply, and we've evolved with it. It's actually been found that people that have lithium, higher levels of lithium in their natural water supply, have lower rates of suicide, depression, rape, murder, I mean, all of these psychiatric conditions, we're talking very low levels. So it's it's most likely something that we need one way or another, and we're just not getting enough of it because of all of the municipal water supply and filtered waters and so on, and not eating enough natural foods that may contain it. So there's actually a number of benefits, proteostasis, and then other hallmarks that, that lithium can actually impact and for neuronal or, or, or brain health as well. All right. Fascinating. Let's let's move right along here. You had already referenced this here when we talked about prostostasis, but we want to talk about altered cellular communication. Yes. So so as I, I essentially alluded to, cells are communicating with one another and they're doing so with these proteins. And 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 they need to communicate to to perform different functions for them to know for example, that you've cut your your skin and it needs to now start to repair that skin and it's sending messages to neighboring cells to do that, right? Or that you've exercised and you need additional energy to be transported to different cells. Like all of these things are being connected and communicated. It's, it's like a, the internet within our body, so to speak, right? And as we age, because of things like loss of proteostasis, but also like chronic inflammation or too many senescent cells, dysfunctional stem cells, like, like we'll talk about, all of these things lead to improper communication between these cells and they're essentially not able to react to the different stimuli as they would do when we're younger. 
Okay, yeah, I think all of us can see how all of these conditions you're talking about now might affect the, the cell's ability to communicate the way it it, can, it should. Is there are there lifestyle or supplements that we would take specifically for cell communication, or am I going to clear that up by some of these things you just talked about? And we're getting ready to talk about. Yeah, so so I promise for the next one, I'll I'll talk about some other lifestyle things, but specifically for for intracellular communication, there are some supplements. Ginger is something that's in many people's diets, but ginger has a lot of health benefits to it. Specifically, the ginger rolls that are contained within ginger, uh, fisetin again, and glucosamine I mentioned earlier. All of those have evidence that they can improve intracellular communication. Fantastic. All right. So next up on our list is genomic instability. What do we, what's what's happening there? Yeah, so so your audience already knows about this. This is DNA damage. So mm. our, our our genomes, our DNA becomes unstable as we age. There's more and more damage that accumulates. That's part of the reason why cancer rates go up as you get older because there's more DNA damage that takes place, and our bodies are less able to repair that DNA damage. Believe it or not, our bodies are able to repair DNA. It's doing it at every moment. But there comes a point where it might overwhelm the system and our bodies aren't able to keep up with that. So uh, what are the things we can do to prevent DNA damage? Well, one is, for example, if you want to prevent skin DNA damage, that's where sunblock comes in, right? Now, there's different perspectives on what types of sunblocks to use and when to use it, like whether it be mineral-based sunblocks or chemical-based sunblocks, and is it going to have an impact on, on our hormonal systems and so on? There's different perspectives on it. Happy to give you mine if you care for it. But ultimately, if you're going to spend extended periods of time out in the sun, you want sunblock. And especially if you care about facial aging, which most of us do, at least wear facial sunblock. I, I wear it every day. Even if I'm working from indoors, there's still UV light that comes in. So I, I do wear facial sunblock every day. And then on my body, that that I, I'll only apply it if I'm going to be out for an extended period of time, like shirtless, like at a, at a beach or something. But if I'm going for a bike ride or a 45 minute run, I might not wear the sunblock on my body in that case, just so I can get some nat natural vitamin D production, some nitric oxide that the body produces. There's a number of good things that might come from, from the different wavelengths of light that can, can hit the body in that case, but only if it's in a measured dose and you don't go crazy with it. Okay. So yeah, sun, sun exposure is something we really haven't dug into too much here, but, uh, you're saying that there's a healthy dose of sun exposure because it does have benefits, right? And certainly we talked earlier about how we evolved, right? I think that was the discussion around lithium, but we evolved to have sun exposure, right? I mean, sunblock and all these different things, whether it's mineral or chemicals or whatever it is, or fairly recent invention. So sure. how, how might I determine, and I'm sure it depends on my skin type and a number of other things, but exactly. what, What's my prescription? You're mentioning you, you personally, you're saying, Hey, I'm always going to cover my face, but I am seeking some other sun exposure on the rest of my body for these vitamin D and other, other yeah. benefits, right? So, 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 so we, you're, you're right. We have evolved with sun exposure. The thing is though, that, you know, after we, we evolved and grew past the, you know, coastal plains of Africa and we went to the northern and southern latitudes, our skin tone changed. Our, our melanin production was reduced. And so if you're living in a, in a northern latitude with a very pale or fair skin, you cannot take as much sun exposure without 
potentially causing significant damage compared to somebody who's very dark skinned, who's been a, like an equatorial uh, uh, latitude for practically you know, their entire evolution, so to speak, right? So, so we need to be mindful of that simply because we evolve with natural sunlight. You got to consider where you are. And if you're going on vacation to Mexico and you live in Toronto, it's, it's a very different sure. uh, scenario. And you also have to consider, you know, we talked about hormesis before, uh, having, having a, a gradual progression for that sun exposure, Right. If you suddenly go from, you know, winter in Toronto to Mexico in January and suddenly get all these UV rays, that goes beyond the hormetic dosage of something that you can come back stronger from. And you actually overwhelm your system and you cause inflammation in your skin and by extension in your body. And we all know that inflammation is not a good thing. We're also causing a lot of DNA damage in that in that context as well. So we want to do everything we can to be mindful of our own, you know, skin type and where we live and how much time we spend out like away from the sun and then how intense we're going to be going into the sun. I, I my, my family, I, I have some genetics from from Sicily, which is tends to be darker skin. I'm living in Florida right now. I've been here for three years. And so like for me to go out in the sun for 30 minutes without a shirt on is not going to do the same to me as that hypothetical person in Toronto. So that's something to be mindful of when, when you're considering the pros and cons of using sunblock or not using it. Okay. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's something I, I just wanted to pick apart a little bit because we'll see very, we'll see extremes when it comes to sun, right? You see people that are just out there and, and there is a, there's obviously an aging <laughs> right. effect to somebody who's just stays in the sun all the time. And then, you know, I live at the beach and I just see, you know, I, I see the parents bringing the kids and they've got the, I don't want to call out any one brand or not, but they're spraying the, you know, they're just lathering these children up and yeah. it's, there's got to be a, 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 a fine line there between how much damage am I doing with that you know, that store bought lathering up this kid every day, but it's, it's, I mean, it's there, there for a week, right. Versus, you know, now there's a lot of protective clothing, umbrellas, shade as sure. you know, and finding that, that's that. ultimately the best. If, if right. you can, yeah, if you can go, go under shade and wear protective clothing and so on, you know, there's SPF ratings for clothing. Sure. Yeah. yeah that'll be the best because there's no chemical, but right. if, if you want to avoid chemicals, you can go with like magnesium or titanium based sunblocks. Just make sure you don't get nano. You do not want nano, um, the nano uh, particles. Right. The, nano those make their way everywhere into your liver and so on. Yeah. Uh, you want to avoid those. You want macro particles that rest on the top of your skin and don't permeate into your bloodstream. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great, great advice there. All right. Moving right along, we have epigenetic instability up next. Okay. So your epigenome is a layer that sits on top of your, your genome, on top of your genes. And this is really critical when I mentioned earlier that like lifestyle can have a, a greater impact on, on your longevity than, than, than your genetics. This is a great case in point example of it. It's not the only example of it, but it's one of them. It's a strong one, which is that your, your lifestyle, your environment is going to determine which genes of yours are turned on or off. And it's actually more like a dimmer switch than a light switch. But imagine if your genes are piano, then your epigenome is the piano player. And so when you're young, that piano player might be playing Tchaikovsky and it's coming out perfectly. And then when you get older, it might sound, you know, you, you, there might be a missing note 
or they press the wrong key, or they don't press it hard enough, or it's too soft, and so on. And essentially, what's happening is different cells and and the and the DNA that should be expressed, or the epigenetics that should be expressed within within that cell, they they start to go awry as as we age. And so things that might cause excess inflammation might turn on, or a skin cell might start behaving like a hair cell, and then suddenly hair appears where it never was before. You know, so things, there's there's some confusion. It's like they're, they're not programmed as well, as cleanly as when you are younger. Uh, and, and there are things that can accelerate this process, and there are things that can decelerate the process. When it comes to accelerating it, sorry, decelerating it, when specifically for supplements, there's lithium I mentioned earlier, glycine, alpha-ketoglutarate, which is something inside of our bodies, but it declines significantly as we age. You can get that in supplemental form as well. Terastilbene, I mentioned briefly earlier, that's found in blueberries. It's it's an antioxidant found in blueberries that you can't eat enough blueberries for, but it's it's much more powerful than what people have heard about before, maybe resveratrol. Terastilbene is like its cousin, but far more powerful, much more evidence behind it actually having an effect, whereas resveratrol has kind of fallen on its face over the decades. It hasn't really proven itself to do what's been claimed of it. Your epigenome, other things you can do, you know, everything from improving your sleep habits. I mean, th- this is one that that really incorporates everything in your lifestyle, right? Your epigenome is going to reflect your diet. If you're if you're over consuming calories or you're actually under consuming by a little bit, maybe 10 or 20 percent below what your caloric needs are, has actually been shown to extend lifespan in practically every organism it's been studied, right? Caloric restriction, as it's called exercise, stress management, all of these things will be reflected in one way or another in your epigenome. Even even critical nutrients, like for example, vitamin D. If you are too low in vitamin D, that can lead to accelerations in of aging in the reflected in the epigenome. And having an adequate level of it can actually have a positive impact on slowing down epigenetic aging, so to speak. Okay, epigenetic aging, and I've not heard it put that way. We, you know, epigenetics is having a moment right now. I feel like a lot of a lot yes. of folks out there in the, the health and wellness space are, are talking about epigenetics, and, and rightfully so, right? These, it, it's a it's a very positive message. It's a very empowering message that where we may have this fatalistic idea of well, because my parents had it, or that's just the way I am, or it's all genetics. We now know that that's not necessarily the case. That there are lifestyle factors that we can do that will that can help us age in a healthy manner here. All right. So moving from epigenetic instability, you our next one up is telomere. This is another one I think that's having a moment right now. I'm hearing a little bit about telomere shortening, and this is being thrown around by, you know, our meditation folks or a lot of different folks are talking about telomeres. Talk about telomere shortening, why that's bad, what we could do to maybe arrest that. So telomeres are the end caps of your chromosomes. So your chromosomes contain your DNA, and then the telomeres are protecting the, that DNA. It's almost like the, the ends of your shoelaces, the caps on your shoelaces, right? So every time we have a cellular division, those telomeres are getting a little bit shorter. And so as you can imagine, if someone has a lot of cellular divisions because they have excess damage in their bodies, right, like too much DNA damage from excess sun exposure or eating unhealthy diets or smoking cigarettes, like things that are known to cause DNA damage, 
So the body needs to replace cells more frequently because the cells are dysfunctional. You're going to then accelerate the shortening of these telomeres. Now, there's there's something called a, a telomeric brink. This is when you get so short on your telomeres that they actually then start to have a, a significant negative impact on, on the aging process and on disease progression. So what that means is that if you are beyond that telomeric brink, your, your telomeres, whether they're very long or, or short, it's not really going to have an impact on, on your aging or disease risk unless they're excessively long, then they're associated with cancer for anyone who wants to nitpick on what I'm saying. But for the most part, they're, they're, they're not really going to have an impact on, on your aging. But once you get below, they're measured in, in the form of kilobases. Once you get below, I believe it's five kilobases, then you've hit that telomeric brink where you have much higher risk of, for example, gastrointestinal cancers, overall mortality risk goes up and so on. So it's one of those check off the box types of metrics. The Novos Age test kit that we sell, which measures your epigenetic rate of aging. So this is your biological age that people may have heard of before. We also simultaneously test telomere length. And this is a check off the box metric. Make sure that you're in a healthy percentile for your age and you're not nearing that telomeric brink unless you're already very old. Maybe if you're 90, like that's different than if you're 50, obviously. So what are the things you can do to uh, prevent the shortening of telomeres? Well, ultimately, like I said, it, it, they can be shortened or the acceleration of their shortening comes from DNA damage and cellular damage and excess inflammation. So anything you can do to reduce those is going to have a favorable effect on your telomeres. You mentioned meditation. I mean, yeah, excess stress can, if you have too much stress, you're, you're going to disrupt your, your circadian cortisol rhythm, which then impacts your glucocorticoid receptors on your inflammatory cells, which then essentially what that means is it's going to cause excess inflammation, systemic inflammation in your body. So stress management, yes, that's going to have an impact on your telomere shortening. If you can meditate, pray, journal, whatever does it for you, um, you should invest in that. If you find yourself to be someone who, who gets stressed out often or easily, you should devote a lot of focus towards figuring out a way to try to reduce that stress, reduce that anxiety, because that can have an impact on this along with other DNA damaging lifestyle habits or practices. Sure. And I think, you know, especially in this day and age, so many of us just live within this chronic stress state, right? This low level inflammation state. And for all the reasons that we've just discussed, really a, a bad place, an unhealthy place to be not helping your, your longevity, your health span or your lifespan, right? All right. Moving right along. Next one, deregulated nutrient sensing. What the heck is that? And how can we prevent it? So deregulated nutrient sensing, your, your audience is probably familiar with this in the sense of as you get older, you have a higher, higher cholesterol numbers, higher blood glucose numbers. So it's essentially, you know, nutrients are going to be the fats or the lipids in our, in our bloodstream. It's going to be the, the glucose in, in our bloodstream. It's going to be the foods we eat and the way that the body perceives that and processes it. And so if the body is not adequately sensing that you have enough glucose in your bloodstream and isn't able to then remove it from the bloodstream, it's going to let those levels get higher. Same thing with triglycerides, LDL, so on and so forth. So 
And there's a number of reasons for this, as, as your audience might imagine. Some of the things we talked about before with intracellular communication and so on, like these are all going to play a role in this deregulated nutrient sensing. But the result is that if you have, for example, higher levels of glucose in your bloodstream, you're going to have more glycation taking place. Glycation is when the sugar molecule binds to a protein receptor on, on different cells, and it basically can, can lead the tissue to become stiff and unable to, to be malleable and, and move the way that it should. And that can lead to skin wrinkling, but more importantly, it can lead to like blood vessels hardening as a result of this glycation. A number of things can go wrong. It's actually what HbA1c is. It's, this is a blood glucose mod measurement. It's looking at the glycation of your red blood cells. So how much sugar how many sugar molecules are attached to that, that red blood cell. So that is a indication of the amount of glycation that is probably have happening throughout your body, as well as what your average blood glucose has been over the last three months. Got it. And what are there specific modalities or lifestyle things, supplements we can take to, to help with this deregulated nutrient sensing? Sure. So, well, so specifically for supplements, fisetin and terastilbene are great for it. Uh, overall, though, uh, eating a, a healthy, balanced diet, not not overindulging, having, especially as you get older, you might have more trouble processing carbohydrates, high carb diets. So you might want to try to reduce the sugar intake, maybe reduce some of the like starchy carbs and replace it with like high fiber types of carbs, vegetables and fruits. You know, we're less insulin sensitive as we get older, which is related to this de deregulated nutrient sensing that now, if you're going to replace some of those calories with fats, just be careful what types of fats you're replacing it with, right? Like you don't want to overdo the saturated fat, uh, which oftentimes keto products are high in saturated fats, which can then lead to high levels of LDL cholesterol, which we probably also don't want simultaneously. So you don't want to you know, improve one thing only to be at the detriment of something else. So like polyunsaturated fats, things that you might find from fats, you might find from like avocado, getting, you know, fish, fatty fish in your diet, nuts, seeds, stuff like that are good replacements rather than going to the high saturated fats, like meat, animal fats, or to a lesser degree, coconut fat. Like I, I have some of that in my diet, but people can go over overboard with like coconut fat and palm oil and so on. Gotcha. Okay. So moving right along here, we're coming to the, the home stretch here. Stem sure. cell exhaustion, stem cell, another thing that's getting, it's having a moment right now to be sure, and probably will continue to, but what is, what is, what do you mean by stem cell exhaustion? Yeah. So our stem cells are the cells that are creating duplicates of our cells. They're creating copies. And so as we get older, we have fewer stem cells. They're being killed off by, you know, the same thing that's causing DNA damage. They're being killed off by excess inflammation in the body. You know, they, they're, they're fragile cells as well. And as we get older, there's a higher chance that you're going to have uh, fewer and fewer of them. And so, so that's one thing is, is losing them. The other thing is actually them being less capable of creating perfect replicas of themselves, right? So the copies that these cells are creating can be more likely or more prone to have, have, you know, incorrect duplicates, right? So the, the, the copy cells are not perfect like they were when you were a baby, for example. 
So those are the two main things to be concerned about with stem cells is, is either losing too many of them or them not making perfect copies of themselves. Gotcha. And outside of external stem cells or PRP or things like that, just more what we were talking about, more of these low tech, is there, is there, are there supplements or anything we can do that's available to most of us in order to, to help our stem cells? Yeah, well, so on the supplement side, glycine and AKG, alpha-ketoglutarate, they have research supporting their potential positive effects on stem cells. But then lifestyle, this is where like general longevity advice would come in. So making sure you don't have a highly inflammatory diet, make sure that you're getting, you know, healthy vitamins and minerals and antioxidants through your food that's going to help to protect your cells and by extension, your stem cells being physically active and exercising and stimulating those stem cells in a, in a low inflammatory environment in our bodies, all of those things combined, um, avoiding DNA damage, like I mentioned earlier, whether that be through sun exposure or cigarette smoke or pollution in the air, there's many different things that can cause DNA damage trying to, to reduce exposure to them. All right. Love it. The prescription for just healthy living then is going to be the best for our or healthy stem cells. That certainly makes sense. Number 10 is disabled macrocytophagy. Disabled macroautophagy. Macroautophagy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so autophagy is when our body is essentially eating up cells that are are no longer fully functional, right? So uh, if you imagine one, one popular health longevity uh, driven practice that a lot of people are engaging in now is fasting. And when you go an extended period of time without calories, our body still needs fuel to run. So it's going to source that fuel internally. And it's going to get that from body fat stores. It's also going to get it from muscle tissue because the the body fat obviously is, is a clean source of energy for the body. But then our muscles, they have amino acids. And those amino acids are needed to create peptides and proteins as the signaling molecules, as I mentioned earlier. So our body needs to recycle these things, right? And so this autophagy process is where the body is identifying the weaker, older cells that are not really performing that well, and basically sacrificing them to take their component parts and reuse them. Now, when you're not fasting, autophagy is still taking place. So we always need it to happen. But when you fast, it happens more often. And so as we, we get older, it, it's not happening as efficiently, as well as it happens when you're younger. And so there are different things that can be done to improve it. One of which is what I just mentioned is fasting. The fasting process itself requires autophagy. So it gets the body more primed to do it. And now these older cells that might be causing damage or might be more likely to turn senescent and so on, these are now going to be removed even potentially cancerous cells, right? Cells that might might have DNA damage that would cause them to be cancerous. If you're fasting, theoretically, you're going to have a higher chance that autophagy, this, this process is going to detect those cells and remove them than if you're in a chronically fed state where most Americans are always overfed. So autophagy is not really activated adequately. Okay, so we got to I know we're we're coming up on our time here and you've been very sure. generous, but I can't I can't leave this unasked because intermittent fasting is all the rage cuz it cures everything, right? What <laughs> and I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek if you if you if you didn't pick that up. But what 
what do you personally do or what would you prescribe somebody in their 50s and 60s do as a fasting practice? I'm, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are there. Sure. So, so uh, I'm going to be a stickler for this, and but but your audience will be that much more well informed. So, there's a difference between time restrictive feeding and intermittent fasting. Most people call time restrictive feeding intermittent fasting, but it's not the same thing. So, if you're eating, say, in an eight hour window and not eating for 16 hours, but you're eating the same amount of food that you would otherwise eat in a 12 hour eating window, so you're eating your normal breakfast, lunch, dinner, just compressed in a smaller time frame. That is time-restricted feeding because there's no fast happening. You're not reducing your caloric intake. And that's what the vast majority of people are actually doing. And that's going to have different effects than if you're actually reducing your caloric intake, which would be even better than than just time-restricted feeding. So it's one thing for your audience to just be mindful of is that if you're going to do this time-restricted feeding, maybe upgrade it and actually make it into truly intermittent fasting because that, that'll be even even better. Now, I'm sorry, I forgot exactly what your question was. Yeah, just saying what that, I'm looking for that protocol, that prescription for fasting. Is it once a month, oh, long fasting? Okay. Is it sure, 12 sure. hours a, a day? Or And I love that distinction that you just made between time-restricted eating and actual fasting, right? To a couple of different things. Right. So, so when it comes to what your audience should do. First of all, this is something that it's important to talk to their medical provider about because, you know, there, there are different complications based on medical conditions that, that people should be aware of. But assuming they get the clear from their doctor, my, my suggestion is to, first of all, be considerate of how much body fat you have, how much muscle you have. If you're a very thin, frail person, you should not be doing any extended prolonged fasts. Uh, time-restricted feeding, perfectly fine. Uh, but Fasting, that's something that you should question. If you have excess body fat, different story because you've got the, the store of, of these, of, of this fat to be able to work with. Uh, when it comes to doing prolonged fasts, if you have low muscle and, and you're getting quite old, I would also be very cautious about that because you might also be losing muscle mass each time you're doing these fasts. So the younger you are, the more muscle you have and the more body fat you have, I'd say you can be that much more liberal with your fasting routines and maybe do like once a month where you're doing 24 hours or what I've done is like once a quarter, I, I've gone as long as a 72 hour fast, but it, it does come with costs. It's good for longevity, but it, it's bad for muscle mass, for example, right? I think for the vast majority of people having time-restricted feeding and then maybe every so often going 24 hours or so fasting is is relatively healthy for a large number of people, not everyone, but a large number of people to get some of the benefits without going too extreme, especially when you're older. Okay. Well spoken. Yeah. I, I Those are great caveats. I get asked about about fasting all the time. Personally, I, just, I say that I fast 12 hours. Basically, I don't I don't eat after dinner. And then I have breakfast right. the next day. And it, so it naturally, my rhythm works out that I basically eat for 12 hours and don't eat for 12 hours. And then typically once a month, I'll do a 24-hour fast, but it's less for the reasons we're talking about. I'm not biohacking. I'm not trying to extend my life, although if I'm cleaning up a little uh, autophagy along the way, <laughs> so be it. But it's more of a mindfulness, spiritual practice in, in my life. So, But yeah, absolutely love it. Thank you. Moving right along. I know we only have a few minutes, but I love this next one. This is what a guest brought up on the show not too long ago. First time I heard it, loved it. 
inflammaging. <laughs> what is inflammaging <laughs> yes. and how can we combat it? Inflammaging is chronic low-grade inflammation that increases as we get older through the aging process, thus the name inflammaging, right? So inflammation itself is is a process that can lead to disease as, as we all know, like at this point, I think everyone has heard that inflammation leads to practically every disease out there, at least that's what people say in, in the media. And so we wanna do whatever we can to try to reduce that inflammation, which is activated by the immune system. And so all of these different practices that we've been talking about for these other hallmarks are going to help to reduce inflammation. The things that I talked about earlier that can cause, for example, DNA damage, excess sun exposure. When your skin turns red, that's inflammation. When you're eating an unhealthy diet high in sugars and and, and possibly even trans fats or, or all of these unhealthy molecules, that causes inflammation. It's an inflammatory diet as opposed to an anti-inflammatory diet, which is one that's very clean with antioxidants in it, nutritionally dense, calorically not so dense. So there's a number of different things that you can do in, in that sense to reduce the inflammation. It's going, it's inevitable as we age, there is a little bit more, but we wanna keep it like a, a, a quiet hum rather than this like loud, um, this, this, this very loud background noise in, in, our, in our biology. 100%. Yeah, with with you there. And let's let's bring it home. Our last one is microbiome dysbiosis. So I imagine we're going to talk about some gut health here to finish this out. Yes, gut health, but it goes beyond just gut health. So the microbiome extends to our skin, and it basically yep. goes from our mouth all the way out the other end. And so every every piece of tissue on the on the way, there's there's a biome there, there's a microbiome, there's there's largely characterized by bacteria, but there's other also fungus and, and so on in there. And so as we age, there are specific probiotic strains that increase in propensity and there are others that decrease. Also, the diversity of our microbiome decreases. Overall, we want to have a more diverse microbiome that is associated with better health. The more diverse our microbiome is, the better health there is. And so how do we go about doing that? There was a, a scientific research project called the American Gut Project, if I'm re recalling correctly, which looked at microbiomes of people with different types of diets. And essentially what they found was that the more diverse the foods you eat, specifically plant-based foods, so vegetables and fruits, the more diverse your microbiome is going to be. And thereafter, you know, more more favorable health as a result of that. So I believe the number was approximately 32 different plant species was like the ideal number, not that everyone will get there, but it's something to aim for to be able to maximize the diversity. Now, how do we actually hit 32 different plant species? It, it won't be as hard as it might sound, but it, it's also not super easy. You know, if, if you're getting all different types of plant species, right, like broccoli, maybe cauliflower, different types of beans, right? So each type of bean is going to be a different species. Spinach is different than collard greens is different than kale. Even herbs and spices can, can play a role in that, right? So having some turmeric, having some ginger, having parsley and basil, right? You go down the list, having garlic. When you start thinking of, it, thinking of it that way and thinking of meals that you create with all of these different components, if over the span of a week, you're able to get 
at least a couple dozen, ideally even more than that, of these different types of foods in there, then you're really going to nurture a healthy gut biome. The other thing is fermented foods. And so that can be sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, kombucha, apple cider vinegar with the mother, as they say, you know, all of these different types of foods are also going to help to increase the microbiome diversity. All right. And then in terms of supplementation, because this is a huge market, right? Specifically, if we're we're talking more that gut microbiome, you got your prebiotics, your probiotics, postbiotics now. Do you, in, in your particular product line, do you guys, do you guys play with supplementation here or is really the, our prescription going to be, Hey, let's try and get these 32 plants say per week. If we're just really loading up on that and diversity. So, so there are different ingredients in the Novos core formula that have favorable effects on dysbiosis. So ginger is one of them, terastilbene, fisetin, rhodiola rosea, even the lithium that I mentioned earlier, it can, it's been, it's been shown to potentially alleviate colon inflammation. So there's, there's a number of different ingredients that there's evidence pointing to the possibility of them having favorable effects on, on, on the gut. Now, if, if someone in your audience is interested in specific probiotics, there's a brand that I personally like a lot, no affiliation whatsoever, but they do have some probiotic strains that are associated with longevity. And that's Pendulum. Pendulum has a, a strain called Acromancia that is associated with longer lived people. That's a, it's a potent pro- probiotic strain. I like that. But before even getting there, I would suggest that people take the free route, just like start with diverse plant species, add some fermented foods into their diet, see how they feel with all of that. And then only if they, they need to go above and beyond, then they can start looking into supplemental probiotics as well. Okay. No, I love that advice. We talk about that here all the time on the show as well. Let's shore up what we, let's, let's break those big rocks before we worry about the, the small rocks. All right. Well, Chris, I've got so many more questions. We may ha- we might have to have you come back on the show because I-, I could do this all day long. As- before I let you go, though, I do have a-, a quick question. Are you familiar with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and some of her work? At the time of this recording, she just re- released a-, a-, a new book called Forever Strong, but she's the, the organ- muscle is the organ of longevity doctor. I don't know if you're familiar with her or not. I haven't come across her. And we we got to hook you. We got to hook okay. you too. She's got a podcast as well, much more science based on hers. I just, as we had this conversation several times, I was like, man, I wonder if this guy knows if he's connected with Doctor Lyon. That's somebody you might want to, might yeah, I'd love check to. out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right, Chris. As we're wrapping up here, how can people connect with you? How can they find out more about Novos? Where do you want to send folks that are interested in learning more? Sure. So there's two places. So one is if you're interested in Novos, all of the work we're doing as a public benefit corporation and providing all of the tools that that I mentioned earlier, that's NovosLabs.com. We're on all of the social networks as Novos Labs. And then I personally have a blog called Slow My Age. That's where I I blog about my personal lifestyle and, and health routines, but I also then back it up with a lot of data, objective data, things like biological age clocks, looking at my epigenome, looking at my proteomic clocks, looking at metabolomic clocks, looking at VO2 max and physiological markers. So there you'll you'll see that I have results that are very significant beyond what some some popular people in the press are spending $2 million to achieve. I'm doing it for only a couple hundred dollars a month and uh, getting even better results. Right and that's on. slowmyage.com. And I'm also on 
Twitter and Instagram as age. And folks, I will put all of that into the show notes. You guys can find that there. Chris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, coming on the show today, talking to us, sharing all your wisdom, your knowledge, obviously your passion for this subject. I love the work you're doing and just encourage you to keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's our show for today, folks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I want to let you know that we have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. There you'll find our free guides with our top tips on nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyle to assist you in your weight loss and fitness journey. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you. I'll put links to everything we talked about today in the show notes, and you can find those over at silveredgefitness.com slash 248. As we wrap up our time together today, you can show your support for this show in two important ways. The first is to tell a friend about this podcast and encourage them to give it a listen. The second is for you YouTube folks to click the like and subscribe buttons and for you podcast folks to please give this podcast a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future episodes. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today and until next time, stay strong. Stay strong.